Mindfulness Mode 376. You can be who you know yourself to be, or you can be present. I don't think you can have it both ways, ever. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Lankford. I love your feedback, Mindful Tribe. Thanks for emailing me. You can message me anytime at bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Let me know how you like today's show. And of course, I always appreciate an iTunes review and a share on social media. Thanks for all you do to help support the show. I have a question for you. Do you work in corporate or do you know anyone who does? Maybe someone who's on a team of employees? Here's how you can reduce stress and increase happiness, productivity, and profitability in the workplace. It's all yours for free. You can download this resource, 10 Simple and Effective Ways to Increase Mindfulness in the Workplace Now. Once your employees are happier, productivity will increase. Download the free resource at mindfulnessmode.com slash workplace P for productivity. Today you'll learn about embodiment from my fascinating guest who will help you listen to the world through your body. You'll find out that his personal path to understanding has been shaped by his adventures as a teenager when he did a lot of cycling alone through the Middle East and India and Europe. Now he teaches about sensitivity and intuition and how to dissolve your energy blocks. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's chat with Philip Shepard. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm here with Philip Shepard today, and he's a fascinating man. He's done so many interesting things in his life, and he's truly a man who will talk with us with expertise about the subject of mindfulness. So, so Philip, are you in mindfulness mode today? I would have to say, by and large, I am. Absolutely. Because it just feels so horrible not to be. It does, doesn't it? You know, for me, yeah. yeah well, for me, too. <laughs> yeah, it's like you become, you become increasingly sensitized to that, and the little alarm bells ring. Why am I doing this to myself? And boom, back it comes. Philip, I want to share a bit about you with our listeners. This is, this is what I've got. Philip Shepard is recognized as an international authority on embodiment. His unique techniques have been developed to transform our experience of self and world and are based on the vision articulated in his celebrated books, which you may be familiar with, New Self, New World, that was 2010, and Radical Wholeness from 2017. The approach Philip takes heals the frantic, restless pace of the intelligence in the head, which tends to run an overdrive by uniting it with the deep, present, and calm intelligence of the body. This way of thinking is, of course, in contrast to the prevailing view of embodiment, which involves sitting in the head and listening to the body. So instead, Philip helps us listen to the world through the body. And he's done so many interesting things. We'll be touching on some of those in the interview. But Philip, what does mindfulness mean to you? In order to speak to that, I guess I, I have to speak to 
this cultural assumption that mind and body are separate. So we even speak about like the mind-body division. And to me, that's just a fantasy because there is no such thing as a mindless body. Uh, unless you're in the morgue. The right. body hums with intelligence. It hums with mindfulness. It's part of a the coherent whole of what I understand as my mind. You know, my mind is the totality of my awareness. And so mindfulness to me is inseparable from embodiment. And embodiment for me at its root is just bringing the, the whole of your consciousness, the whole of your intelligence into coherence. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I love that intelligence in the brain that that excels at abstraction and uh and division and perspective but it's just one part of what i experience as my mind you did a lot of traveling in your life and i know that you um you spent time riding were you riding a bike when you were in your younger years through europe Am I right about that? Well, here's the funny thing. When I was a teenager growing up in Toronto, I felt the, the cultural mores, the cultural tracks down which my thinking was being told to run, um, diminishing and oppressive and constraining. And I knew either I was going to leave my culture or feel my aliveness succumb. So I did the first. I left. I went to England and bought a bicycle. <clears throat> I was 18 and headed off for Japan with the you know reasoning capacity of an 18-year-old that suggested that if I got on the bicycle and was headed in the right direction and didn't stop pedaling, I would eventually arrive in Japan. And in fact, I did. And I went, so I went, yeah, you're right. I went through Europe and the Middle East and India and Japan and was gone for two years. Tell us about that learning experience. On a bike, traveling on a bike, you are wide open to the world around you. And so I passed through so many different cultures. And I had, I don't know, I somehow had an ability to, to feel the culture and, and um, shape myself to it. And so every culture I passed through was luminous. Every culture I passed through was limited. Any culture to me represents a story about what it means to be human. So our culture instructs us over and over again that, well, to be human is to live in the head and take charge of your life and get ahead and, and advance to headquarters. And, and um, it's all about the head, the very car with which we have such a deep and familiar and, and uh, long abiding association. It's basically designed as a head on wheels. So 
if there were three headlights, you'd see the road better, but then you'd lose the metaphor of the head. It's got to be two headlights. And the, you know, the, we look out through the windshield at the world outside of us, the way we sit in our heads and, and look out at this separate world around us. Um, so that, that cultural story of what it means to be human is what I, you know, without articulating it in that way, was getting away from. And I eventually arrived in Japan where I studied, I studied um, classical Japanese theater. This, it's called no theater. It's, it's a 600-year-old tradition. It comes from the time of Chaucer. <clears throat> and the center of the Japanese culture is hara. Hara is the Japanese word for belly. But you can't translate it as belly because in our culture, what's belly? Belly's this kind of troublesome area that's prone to indigestion and uh, weight gain and, and a source of embarrassment unless you work really hard and then it becomes a source of vanity. Um, in Japan, hara is the place where you return to connect with your profoundest truth. It's where you come home to yourself. And I watched no theater and I'd, I'd never seen, I'd never seen a head turn and look from that place. I'd never seen an arm being lifted from that awareness of the world. And so that situated me really well on returning to my culture to begin to ask the questions that I was incapable of formulating having grown up inside it. The most difficult thing in the world is to question what you've taken into your body as an assumption before you were old enough to formulate a question. Did you see yourself as an actor before you went on that adventure? I did. I was, I, I, I somebody asked me a while back, what was the first play you were in? And I had to think hard and then I remembered right in grade six, I wrote a play and directed it and acted in it. So it runs deep and and it was that love of theater. A, I had to get out of my culture, but B, you know, I'd, I, I'd been in, um, gone through high school and was accepted at university to study physics. And there was that, that mystery of quantum mechanics that just, tugged at me, but I'd seen a no play in Montreal. I'd actually heard it was coming and I traveled to Montreal to see it uh, when I was 17. And the mystery of no theater was a profounder, more resonant mystery than that of quantum mechanics. So I actually went to Japan to study theater and, and was you know, I'd, uh, by that time, I'd acted in Toronto and studied with a theatre company here and I'd gone to England and I'd done some acting in England. Theatre kind of runs in my blood, not in my family, but in my blood for sure. Right, right. Well, it sounds like it was an, ex an amazing experience. Did you ever follow up and study physics then? Did you, did you continue on with that? No. Um, the University of Toronto decided they didn't want me. Um, I literally, like, I'd come back and I'd written letters of deferment. I'd written two letters of deferment. And they said, oh, yes, just, you know, enjoy your travels and 
come back. And so I kind of didn't bother with the third letter of, of deferment. And um, then they looked into my grade 13 marks. Uh-huh. And I knew in grade 13, all they looked at were your first term marks and your scholastic aptitude test. So there were many, many more interesting things to do in grade 13 than sit in class. Absolutely. <laughs> I actually, I, I think I spent as much time at U of T as I did, you know, sitting in on lectures as I did at high school. Um, and my marks reflected that. So in a way it was, in retrospect, a blessing. And I only say that because when you go into an institution and you're trained, <coughs> There is a tendency to absorb their um, dictums for what correct questions are and what incorrect questions are, for how to proceed with a line of questioning, to how to prepare a thesis. And I didn't have any of that. So I just I just went full bore at it in my own way, gobbling up. I mean, I, you know, on my own time I've read physics and pre-Socratic philosophy and the classics, and I've just had this. Um, unmanaged feed that has followed nothing but my own curiosity. Well, it's interesting because my son is 16 and he's passionate about acting, but he's also passionate about physics, theoretical physics. That's his love and he can't wait to go to university and study physics. He's completely 100% thrilled that he's going to have an opportunity to do that but is very strong in in acting and in music as well and so they're doing a production at school next year and he's one of the directors there are three people three students that are are going to be doing this student directed production so uh it reminds me of him when you talk about this yeah einstein once said he was he felt more pride in his violin playing than in his physics. And I'm, I, my hope is that your son can keep both of them alive. Yeah, because they nourish well. us in such different ways. Yes, they do. Well, let's talk about Philip on stage. You've, mm-hmm. been, you've played leading roles in so many productions. Tell me about one that stands out in your mind where there's some parallel with mindfulness that makes some kind of sense to discuss on our show? Um, I acted in an adaptation of Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Marlowe's Faustus is very different from Goethe's Faustus because in Goethe's Faustus, this virtuous man is the subject of a bet between the devil and the angel as to whether he can be corrupted. In Marlowe's Faustus, Faustus this, rapacious, brilliant man who has come to the the very limits of human knowledge and he's absorbed it all and he wants more and he wants more power and stumbles on black magic. And he summons up Mephistopheles, the servant of the devil. And he says, I want you to serve me. And Mephistopheles says, well, it'll cost you your soul. And Faust says, what's that? It's just a fantasy. Give me, give me this power. And in in Marlowe's version, Mephistopheles actually pleads with Faust not to do it. And Faust basically says, piss off, I want it. So it's a a very different take. It's a very modern production. And it was just me 
and one other actor on that stage. And as an actor, unless you're listening to every moment through the whole of your body, um, you, you step out of the flow. You step out of, you know, what athletes call the zone. Yes. So there is this full-on sensitized awareness that is, you know, akin to a surfer riding a wave. And all those currents of life roil up and you, in the stillness of that, of that receptivity and awareness, you're poised and dancing along it. And that's really how it feels. And boy, to step out of mindfulness is to move into mechanics, is to move into a, a top-down supervision of what you're doing. And that's not life. And what, what the audience has come to that theater for is in hopes of, of experiencing a new life. What was your, the first role you played in New York City? I, in New York, I was working with a, an amazing company um, that curiously was influenced by Japanese theater, by no theater. Um, and uh, it's called Time and Space Limited. And there was a role um, in which I was a um, Confederate soldier uh, uh, in the wake of Gettysburg. And um, the lead actor in that company, Claudia Bruce, was extraordinary. Um, and uh, and uh, anyway, it's just such a deeply, deeply memorable. Well, you know, again, it's like it's like what what I remember is in my body's awareness or in my mind is is the energy, the texture, the the coursing flow of it, um, and the music. There was music with it. It was so beautiful. Have you ever acted on stage in Stratford, Ontario? No, I never have. One of the oversights of my career. Yeah. And if you had the opportunity, what role do you think you would enjoy playing there? That's a good question. Um, I've, I've always, always felt a, an affinity with Lear. I think the essence of tragedy is, is you take someone who knows who they are and then the world around them changes in such a way that that becomes untenable. They can no longer hold on to who they know themselves to be. And, and, and tragedy is when these, these two opposing forces come into contact and have an effect on each other. And I think it reflects... You know, in life itself, you've sort of got a choice. You, you can know who you're, you can be who you know yourself to be, or you can be present. I don't think you can have it both ways ever. So if you're holding on to your identity, to your known self, your ability to be present will be compromised. If you yield who you know yourself to be, you can land here and it's like, the present illuminates who you are. And it's so much easier to have who you are illuminated by your felt relationships than to be insisting on and defending a preconceived notion of who you are. Philip, let's talk about your burning desire for freedom. 
Mm. Has that been a theme throughout throughout your life? I invented a word, Bruce. My word is eleutheromaniac, um, and it means a mania for freedom. And it it has been, and it's you know it it includes uh, a really insistent questioning as to what what true freedom is. And in in my work, you know, for some reason, I've been highly sensitive all my life to how I am reacting to the world around me in a way that inhibits my freedom. And so I've, I've undone and undone and loosened the fetters that I've placed on my own responsiveness. And freedom, you know, in our culture, we misunderstand what freedom is, I think, in a profound way. Um, we want to be safe. You know, if you're alive, you're not safe. I mean, you're just not, right? So, so, but the, the, in, in, in mythology, the tyrant strives to make himself safe, to establish his security. And, and we follow that by accumulating possessions and managing our lives and mapping out our career path and, and managing our relationships. And it's, you know, there's so much top-down imposition of idea and organization um, that has as its purpose to protect us but ends up confining us. It becomes a sort of prison. So the tyrant seeks freedom and security. And in mythology, the hero seeks security in freedom. When you give yourself over freely to the wave of being, just as, just as an actor does on stage, and you ride it with that sensitivity that keeps you poised and at rest on the present, in that freedom, you come back to a security of being. So you find, you find a security of being through that surrender, in a way, to what is. I want to talk to you about the documentary that is being done about your work. Are you able to influence how that is coming across? Tell us about that. It's, yeah, it's very, it's very collaborative. Um, I sort of, in my mind, without, without wishing to sound too overblown about it, um, I sort of liken it to an inconvenient truth. Except in this case, the inconvenient truth is that all the imbalances and destruction and conflict um, in our man-made world around us are reflections of imbalances and conflict and destructiveness within ourselves. And even more specifically, in our relationship to our bodies. So I think, I think your relationship to your body is the template for every other relationship you have. And if your relationship to the body is a top-down relationship, where you tend to control the body and, and treat it like a, a resource to be exploited and try to just fix it when it goes wrong, rather than rather than joining its intelligence and learning to harmonize with it, then how you react to the world around you 
will be from a position of top-down control. And even, you know, with all the, with all the ailments that afflict us, that, that top-down control is what we insist on applying um, to our problems in order to fix them. And it's the very modality that has created the problems in the first place. So every problem we face as a species, um, every major problem we face, comes back to um, knowledge, that we think knowledge will save us, and we gain knowledge, and we implement it, and we've discovered pesticides and how to burn fossil fuels and how to make plastics and how to how to go get into agribusiness and the chemicals and the fertilizers and and our knowledge has become lethal because it's not counterbalanced by self-knowledge and to me that's where mindfulness comes in because and again we we've misunderstood i think what self-knowledge is you know, you ask someone who they are and they'll give you the grocery list of, well, these are my values and this is my lineage and this is my favorite color and on and on. But that's an objectification and self-knowledge cannot be objectified to, to me. Um, self-knowledge is born within us as we come into felt relationship with the world around us. So as I, as I come into felt relationship with a tree in the stillness of my being, that tree will illuminate who I am in the moment. If I come into felt relationship with a child splashing in a pool, who I am is illuminated in that moment. The more deeply I come into felt relationship with the world around me, the more deeply I come into self-knowledge. And it's a very, very different thing from being in known relationship with the world, you know, knowing that's a tree, knowing that's a kid in the pool, and not having to feel a thing. I'm curious, what aspect of Philip Shepard is most difficult to convey in that documentary? My, um, my work has been deeply, deeply blessed by the ways of other cultures. I, you know, I have a limited capacity to question my own culture. And I've been, I've been so um, deeply helped by the Japanese culture, the Anglo-Eve culture, the Pidahang culture in their ways of understanding what it means to be human. Because I think what we are facing, like the actual crisis that we're facing is, is we need to let go of our story of what it means to be human. And and come into, evolve into a new way of being. So the most difficult thing to convey is what that new way of being looks like and feels like and how much better it feels. Because the way of being we have, we've got this boundary around the self. We're, you know, we're told to, to be independent. And we grow into our independence and we feel our independence. And there's no such thing in all the cosmos as independence. You can't find an example of it anywhere. It's just a fantasy. Everything depends on everything. Everything leans on and inter interpenetrates everything. It, there is just this flow of process. This, you know, scientists are bent and determined on finding the, the smallest 
unit of, of existence. Well, the smallest unit of existence isn't the, the quark or the muon. Or, it's the cosmos itself. You don't, that is the unity. And anything less than that is, has it, its existence dependent on unity. So, so the boundary within which we find ourselves and protect ourselves and hold ourselves leaves us feeling non-porous to the world around us. We actually don't want to feel poor. So there's a, the, um, the Anglo-Eve culture. Anthropologists have described um, their sense of personhood and, and they, they, uh, it's been said they have a, a radical indeterminacy of the self. A radical indeterminacy of the, I mean, that's a nightmare to us. Yes. Right? Within our values. How, I, I, of course I need to know who I am. How could I yield to a radical indeterminacy? But you can't yield to the present and the fluxes of the present without yielding to, to the changes it stirs up within you. Um, there's another anthropologist um, who talks about the porosity of personhood within the Anglo-Eve culture. And, and that, again, is a nightmare to us. But your very reality um, is sustained by the flow of the world through you, whether it's, whether it's your breath taking the exhalations of forests or the food moving through you, becoming you, um, or the energy of the person you're with passing through you and being felt. The most difficult aspect, in a way, is, is preparing the field um, in a gentle, encouraging way to say, you know, there's another way of being, and it feels better, and it doesn't mean giving up anything of importance. It, it's just a matter of softening into who you truly are and coming into harmony with the present around you. <clears throat> and if we can't come into, the harmon into harmony with the world, will continue to push it into imbalances. Philip, I want to ask you a question about bullying. And that's because I've worked in the field of bullying prevention for over a decade. And I always like to ask a question, if you have a story mm -hmm. that involves bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference. Do you have a story you can share with us? Yeah, well, I'm thinking of one that happened very recently. I um. I facilitate teacher's training. So there are people who are learning to teach my work. And a woman just wrote me back. There was a, there's a woman in her neighborhood um, who is something of a, of a bully. And we actually talked about it during the course. And she said, what can I, what, you know, what can I do about it? And I made some suggestions. Well, she, she got back and sure enough, um, you know, she went out walking her dog and there's this woman and there's no getting away. And the woman comes at her and she just dropped more and more deeply into her wholeness, into her mindfulness, into that grounded, receptive, porous, um, responsive place. And she said, the woman talked at her for about two minutes and then left looking slightly confused. And normally it would have been like 20 minutes of, and, and I, I really took heart from that. She didn't, she didn't do anything but 
land in that mindful coherence of her awareness at this moment. I love, I love where that went and how it went. <laughs> what a great story, Philip. That's, yeah. that is great. Philip, as we move toward the end of the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person <clears throat> who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Uh, Marion Woodman, who died yesterday extraordinary woman there's a there's a movie brilliant movie made of her called dancing in the flames she is i don't know of anyone more embodied than she is and she is a healer and and so deeply mindful of everything around her and the whole of her life how has mindfulness affected your emotions we think of our emotions as personal private things we we feel our experience as private and everything you experience is shared it's just the nature of our reality and so to come into that grounded place of wholeness is to feel not not that contained um charge of the emotion but that dilation where it's not that the emotion goes away but it becomes integrated it's able to be integrated tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. In 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> my, because my, I teach, uh, breathing is, is a huge part of what I teach. And, and my contention is that the whole of the body should be available to the breath. And if it's not, you're not in wholeness. And we keep the breath out of our legs. We keep it out of our backs. We constrain it. So we, we talk from here and we lose our wholeness by constraining our breath. So it's, it's, it's the foundation. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? I'm tempted to recommend mind. Is that not allowed? That's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, only because it's um, like my most recent one, which I actually you know, have a copy of, um, yes. it's, um, it's my life's work, uh, laid out, um, in as simple and practical a way as I can do it. Radical wholeness, radical wholeness. Listeners, get your hands on that. Radical wholeness by Philip Shepard. A wonderful look at your concepts, your ideas, your thoughts. So do that. And can you share an app which helps in any way with your mindfulness? Um, well, um, I'm currently developing an app called Body World okay. um, as one word. And, and the, reason, the reason it's called Body World is because we were trained to think of our experience as like a body-mind experience. And I can't... Uh, um, I can't make sense of that. In any moment, my experience is a body world experience and it's a unity and who I am is illuminated by the whole of the world around me. So that's where the, the body world comes from. Uh, it won't be available though for about nine months. Okay. It's on the way. Well, we'll be looking for that and I'll put it in our show notes when it is available. Oh, wonderful. I'd love to I'd love to share it with you. Thank you, Bruce. That would be great. Yeah. So, listeners, you can 
You can look up more about Philip on the show notes at mindfulnessmode.com and just type his name, Philip Shepard, with one L in the Philip part. Philip Shepard with one L and uh, type that into the the show notes page and you will uh, come up with his show notes. So how can we reach out? How can we reach you and connect with you? Oh, um, the easiest way is on my website, which is philipshepherd.com. And shepherd, I should just point out, is spelled the way the, the guy looking after sheep is spelled, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff there, Bruce. There's um, There are free videos that can be downloaded. There's the embodiment manifesto um, that I wrote some time back, an interview with the Sun magazine that a lot of readers um, have told me is is such an easy access into my work and, and gives a sort of uh, overview of it. So philipshepherd.com would be the way to go. Well, Philip, I'm honored that you've been on my show. I appreciate it so much. And listeners, get yourself over to philipshepherd.com and enjoy learning more about what Philip has to offer. So thanks so much, Philip, for being on the show. It's been such a joy, Bruce. Thank you. Thanks. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. Remember what I mentioned at the top of the show about whether you work in corporate, have teams of employees, and you want to reduce stress with those employees and help them to be more productive? You can download the free resource, 10 Simple and Effective Ways to Increase Mindfulness in the Workplace Now. And once your employees are happier, you know, productivity will increase. Download the free resource at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash workplace p so remember subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air till next time mindful tribe use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm focus and happiness stay in the mode <laughs>